Please turn with me in your Bibles to our our text this morning, which comes from the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 8 and we'll be looking at verses 11 to 21. So Mark chapter 8, verses 11 to 21. Mark chapter 8, verses 11 to 21. Brothers and sisters, hear with me then the reading of God's holy word. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets of full broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Thus far as a reading of God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters, last Sunday as we gathered, we looked at the feeding of the four thousand. This was a miraculous event performed by Jesus where He multiplies from seven loaves and a few small fish, enough food to satisfy the hunger of these 4,000 people. But as we said before, this is nothing new with Christ, right? Throughout His ministry, we've highlighted the fact that He is doing miraculous work after miraculous work, right? Revealing His identity through His works and through His words. But this is why the reaction and the response of the Pharisees and the apostles is so astonishing today. The Pharisees have seen Jesus perform these works. If you remember in Mark chapter 3 in the synagogue in front of the Pharisees, Jesus healed the man with the withered hand. I mean, Jesus' apostles have been with Him throughout His entire ministry. They've seen Him make the lame walk and the leper clean. They've seen Him feed the multitudes and cleanse those enslaved by demons. And yet for the Pharisees and for the apostles, none of this was enough. No work that Jesus has performed thus far has caused the Pharisees to believe in Him, saying, yes, He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. None of the works that Jesus has performed thus far have made the apostles, although they believe and trust, make them fully commit themselves to the Lord and fully trust in Him. This is why they keep questioning Him. And they keep mistaking the things that He's saying and what He is doing. What's going on is that the Pharisees and the apostles 
are fashioning a Messiah after their own choosing. This is the mistake they both are making. Right? The Pharisees want a Messiah to do a work that they think is worthy of belief this day. Right? They say, you must show us that you are the Messiah by doing a work that we think is worthy. And they won't be happy until He performs that work, until He satisfies their conditions and their demands. And the disciples, right, they are still waiting on Jesus, right, to, to take over, to, 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 to conquer all of His enemies and to, to rule on the earth. Right? They're waiting for Him to become something other than what He has revealed Himself to be. But what we see, brothers and sisters, is that the, the problem for both the Pharisees and the apostles is not an intellectual problem. It's not an intellectual problem. In fact, what they're doing is they are sinning against their knowledge and questioning Jesus and questioning the things that they have seen and they have, have heard. They are sinning against knowledge. They are sinning against those things that they have seen and they know to be true. But the problem is, for both of them, is they are working, they are functioning with a defective heart. And so everything they see and everything they hear is being filtered through that defective heart. And so for the Pharisees, whose heart is hardened towards the Lord, everything they see, they see through lens of, of blindness. Everything that the apostles are seeing and are filtering through their heart, they're seeing with a fog. And so they are not seeing it so clearly. Right? The Pharisees are stubbornly hard-hearted, refusing to believe. The apostles, we might say, are more, they're suffering from more of a, a dullness of heart. Right? They're not perceiving the things that they should by now. And so how does Jesus respond to the hardness of the human heart? Well, this is what we're going to look at together today. And then at the end, what I also want to do is to ask how we might remedy the hardness that resides within our very own hearts. And so we're going to do this today under, under three points. And so the first point will be Jesus responds to the hardness of the heart with a sigh. Jesus responds to the hardness of the heart with a sigh. Point two, Jesus responds to the hardness of the heart with admonishment. He responds to the hardness of the heart with admonishment. And then the third and final point we'll see is ways to break up the remaining hardness of our hearts. Ways to break up the remaining hardness of our hearts. Right, so point one. So why are we told that Jesus sighs? Right, what precipitates this response from our Lord? Well, we're told in verse 11 that the Pharisees came and began to argue with Him, seeking from Him a sign from heaven to test Him. You see, the Pharisees are approaching Jesus. And as they do so, they're not approaching Him struggling, looking for some clarity. They're not approaching Jesus saying, Oh Lord, I want to I wanna try so hard to believe. I'm, I'm so close. Just show me one sign for assurance and I'll surely believe. That's not what they were saying. right? They approached Jesus with evil intent. They approached Jesus seeking to put Him to the test. Right? They're not looking for a sign to believe. They're looking for a sign to continue to disbelieve. They were there to trap and 
discredit Jesus. And you know how we know that? Because if they really wanted to sign in order to understand that He was truly the Messiah, they could have looked at the entirety of His ministry thus far. As He has performed miraculous work after miraculous work. The fact of the matter is, brothers and sisters, that there was no sign, in fact, that would convince them. And we have already seen evidence of this. If you remember in Mark chapter 3, the Pharisees and the scribes come from Jerusalem. And they confront Jesus and they they see Him performing these works. There is no denying it. And so, what do they do? Do they say, oh, we believe? No. They attribute His work to Satan. They say He's doing this by by the power of demons. And so they weren't looking to be convinced. Instead, they were doing the work of Satan. The the work of their father. If you remember in chapter 1 of Mark, the spirit after Jesus' baptism drives him out to the wilderness. And what happens? Satan comes to test him, to tempt him. This is the very same thing the Pharisees are doing today. And I ask, don't we see this a lot even in our society today? People putting our Lord to the test. Where they say, you know, they have the unfortunate news, they have, you know, some... They, they have cancer. And so what do they say? I know I've been bad, Lord. But if, if you heal me, I promise. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna serve you now. Just heal me. Give me a sign that you're real and I'm gonna serve you. You know, maybe a, a child, uh, in the car accident, in a coma in the hospital, and they said, Lord, give me a sign. Just please awaken them from their coma. Heal them. And I'm gonna dedicate my life to you. People are constantly looking for a sign. And yet, Jesus will not give in to the demands of people. Jesus will never go off the path that the Father has given to Him. He will never go off the mission that He was sent to do. We see this in His interaction with the devil. We see this in the interaction with the Pharisees. He would not satisfy their demands. He was sent for a purpose and a mission and nothing was going to knock him off of that. What we also see is that that Jesus will not work against the Father's will because the the will of the Father is the will of the Son. And so what, what we have to understand, what people have to understand, is that there is no bartering with God. There is no, I'll trade you this for that. We have no leverage with God. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything that we can provide Him. And in fact, we are the ones dependent. We need everything from Him. And so why why does Jesus sigh here? Why does He let out this deep groan in response to what has been said? Well, it's a sigh of grief over the hardness of their hearts. It's a sigh of grief over the hardness of their hearts. It's a sigh of grief over their willful and continual unbelief. It's a sigh of grief as Jesus knows the destruction that they are bringing upon themselves through this persistent unbelief. And sadly, brothers and sisters, I don't think that there are many Christians out there who share in the same grief-stricken reaction to sin that Jesus does. Sin today is oftentimes taken lightly. Perhaps that's true for some of us here. We treat sin as if it's no big deal. It's a joke. 
I can dabble in sin. I can, I can play in it a little bit and I'll be just fine. But if you wish to bear the Christian name, brothers and sisters, we don't dabble in sin. We run from sin. We flee from sin. And we grieve over our sin. When you see or you hear about sin, whether that's drunkenness, whether that's lying, whether that's sexual immorality, whether that's abortion, whether that's Sabbath breaking, it ought to grieve you. It ought to grieve us. Because God has created us to do what? Right? To be sober-minded. To be self-controlled. To be sexually pure. To walk in truth. To respect life. To keep holy His Sabbath. And so it ought to grieve us when we see these sins. It ought to grieve us primarily because it dishonors God. The sin of others dishonors God. When we do these things that God has not ordained, it dishonors His name. And so it ought to grieve us. Likewise, it ought to grieve us because when our neighbors sin, it destroys them. Right? Sin destroys our neighbor. When they use their bodies sexually in sexually immoral ways, they are destroying both body and soul. When you skip out on the Lord's Day and do not come to worship the Lord, what you are doing is you are starving your soul from what you need to survive spiritually. The one who rejects God's truth and follows after lies is heaping upon themselves and storing up for themselves the wrath of God as judgment day approaches. And so if sin dishonors God, brothers and sisters, if sin destroys our neighbors, and if you are not grieving over sin, I ask, where is your heart for God? Where is your heart for your neighbor? We have the example that Peter gives us. Second Peter chapter 2. He tells us that righteous Lot was greatly distressed by the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. He was greatly distressed. And that his soul was tormented over their lawless deeds that he saw and that he heard. Are you distressed over sin? Is your soul tormented when you see and hear of sin going on in our own land and across the entire world. But I ask, if we are to grieve over the sin of others, how much more are we to grieve over our own sin? I think many times, right, we we get this backwards, don't we? It's easy for us to get really angry and upset about the sin of others. But our own sin, we gloss over. It's no big deal to us. doesn't distress us. In fact, we're quite happy with our sin. But was this the response of David after his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba? What does he say in in Psalm 51? Verse 1, he begins, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Is this not the same response that Peter has after denying Christ three times? We're told that he broke down and he wept after realizing what he has done. Brothers and sisters, we ought to look at our sin with disgust just as David 
and just as Peter has. Because our sin, just like the unbeliever's sin, dishonors God. But as believers, as the one who has been redeemed by God, what our sin also does is it counts the life and death of Christ as something small and and insignificant. We act like Christ taking upon Himself our nature and suffering and dying was no big deal when we can sin and not grieve over it. Christ's death was no easy thing for Him. You remember as death approached how He went to the Mount of Olives. And it's there that He prays for the the cup to pass Him. If it be the will of the Father. And what are we told there as he's praying? What happens? He sweats droplets of blood. That's how in anguish he was. That's how distressed his soul was. And so think of the pain and think of the agony of the Lord's suffering on your behalf next time you take sin lightly. Right? We ought not to laugh over sin and instead cry over it. Instead of taking sin lightly, we ought to consider how weighty it weighed upon our Lord as He hung upon the cross. You see, hypocrites don't care. Like the Pharisees, they they use religion for their own purposes, for their own gain, for their own needs. But brothers and sisters, we all must beware. You do not put the Lord your God to the test. We've seen, Paul gives us the example of the Israelites uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I ask Ashley, would you turn there with me, please? And let us look together. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Let us see what happens when you put the Lord your God to the test. First Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock and that followed them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they, over, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Here verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. You see, brothers and sisters, the Israelites put the Lord their God to the test. And what happened? They did not enter the promised land. And so, as we think about this, as we consider this today, we ought to ask ourselves, who are we to begin with to demand anything from the Lord our God? Who are we to demand anything from Almighty God, our Creator and our Maker? Who are we to demand that He give to us anything when we are deserving of absolutely nothing? And yet still, He graces us with His bounty. 
And so this is why the Lord then says to them, as they try to test him, this wicked generation will not see a sign. See, what Jesus knows is that for the one who has a hardened heart towards him with evil intention, no sign that he would give to them would suffice. This is what we see even with Pharaoh as an example, isn't it? If we think back to the book of Exodus, the Lord sends Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go so that they might come and worship me. And what happens? Pharaoh hardens himself against the Lord. And so there's these plagues that he sends, frogs and locusts, and he kills all the livestock. He puts boils and sores on all the people. Does that stop Pharaoh? No, he just hardens his heart more. He doesn't believe now. He even takes Pharaoh's firstborn son. It causes Pharaoh to relent for a moment. And then what happens? He goes right back out and he chases after the Israelites. Right? No sign God gives was going to cure his hardened heart. And so, like Pharaoh, these Pharisees were going to remain blind because of their persistent rebellion against God. And yet, brothers and sisters, it still grieves God. Right? The sin of others still grieves our Lord. This leads us, though, into our our second point this morning, which is that Jesus responds to the hardness of heart with admonishment. Jesus responds to the hardness of heart with admonishment. So after Jesus' encounter with the Pharisees, what do we see? We're told they get into the boat and they, they cross over to the other side of the sea. And in verse 14, we read that the disciples have forgotten food. They only have one loaf of bread, which is not sufficient to feed all 13 of the people. And yet, while they're thinking about bread, right? our Lord is thinking about the interaction that He just had with the Pharisees. And so he, he looks to teach them. He looks to caution them. And in verse 15, He says this, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, what do the disciples take him to mean? Right? They think he's, he's scolding him. He, they, they think that he's upset because they didn't bring enough bread with them. Because we're told in verse 16 what happens. They start discussing that they have no food. Can't you just imagine what's going on in the, in the boat? They're just like blaming each other. Thomas, it's your fault. No, Matthew, it's your fault. Just pointing the blame back and forth. And what is... Our Lord do. He admonishes them. He says, are you really arguing about bread right now? Have you been with me this long and you still don't get it? You've seen my miracles? You've heard the word I've proclaimed? You've believed? You've gone out and preached it yourself and still you are slow to understand? And so He makes them recall His two miraculous feedings here because apparently what? They have already forgotten them. Because he says, do you not remember? And he goes into verse 19. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets did you take up? And they said, seven. And so he says, do you not yet understand? What was the apostles' issue? What do we read at the end of verse 17? Jesus asks, are your hearts hardened? He's saying, you've seen my compassion. He's saying, you've seen my power. You've seen all of this. You've seen me already take next to nothing in bread and make it enough for over 4,000 people. And yet you sit here and you argue about bread when I'm trying to teach you something. 
You see, their heart was not with Christ. Their heart was not focused on what He was teaching. Their heart was focused on earthly and insignificant things. That's because they did not fully trust Christ yet to provide for them all that they needed. And yet, it just took this one little thing to expose that reality, didn't it? It It took one little loaf of bread to show these twelve the hardness of their heart. They were not willing to commit themselves fully to the Lord. They were not ready to submit in every area of their life and commit themselves to the rule and the authority of Christ. And so Jesus then admonishes them for for two reasons, I think, really, we see. He admonishes them really for two reasons. The first thing that He admonishes them for is the weakness of their faith. He admonishes them for the weakness of their faith. They did not believe strongly enough in Jesus and in His ability to take care of them. But in doing that, think about what they're doing. Right? They're they're questioning His divinity. They're questioning His deity. Because God, certainly everyone knows, could take care of us. But what about a man? Right? It's hard to entrust yourself to someone that you think is just like yourself. The second thing that He admonishes them for is their forgetfulness. Right? They were so caught up in the cares of the world that they forgot what He has just done. They forgot the miracle that He has just performed. Their earthly mindedness diminished their ability to spiritually perceive what was happening. And isn't this something that is true for all of us here? Right? When we succumb to this earth and the things of this world and are focused on this, it hinders us spiritually, doesn't it? It affects us spiritually. Right? When you're so caught up with your work life and the hustle and bustle of, of everything that's going on, and when you come home and you have all these things you want to get done, or you sit down to watch sports or to watch some political news analyst, what happens? You get so wrapped up in the world that your reading of Scripture daily starts to wane. That your prayer life starts to fade away, doesn't it? For the younger ones, when you go to school all day and you're done, you're tired. You want to just sit back and relax. You want to talk to friends. You want to play video games. You want to watch YouTube, play on social media. But what happens? It affects you spiritually, right? When all of our focus is upon earthly things, it is to our spiritual detriment. Right? What the disciples' reaction showed to us is that they spent no time thinking about what the Lord has just done. He just fed 4,000 and they're questioning about making more loaves for them to eat. Right? They show, they demonstrate that they have reflected zero on what He has just done. They have thought nothing about His gracious character in just feeding 4,000 people. They have thought and gave no time to think about the Lord's kindness and love and compassion that He has just shown. They have given it no thought. And perhaps that is true for some of us here, right? We, We are so caught up in what's going on in our lives with the hustle and bustle of life, right, that we give no thought to what God has already done. Perhaps if all of us spent more time every day stopping and remembering and recounting the great and mighty deeds of the Lord, we would be more than willing to commit everything we have to Him. And yet, brothers and sisters, 
what I want you to see is this. That although He admonishes them for their weakness of faith, and He admonishes them for their forgetfulness, what He does not do is reject them. He doesn't reject them. Right? He doesn't say, get off my boat. He doesn't say, leave. I'm going to find 12 better apostles than you. Right? Ones that aren't so slow to learn. Ones that don't distrust me. Ones that don't lack faith. Right? He doesn't reject them. And I want us to see this. Right? That the same is true for you and I. He does not reject us because of the weakness of our faith. But rather, our Lord bears with us. And He comforts us. And He encourages us. And He uplifts us. And He empowers us by His Spirit to grow in spiritual knowledge and understanding and wisdom. Right? It is that Spirit living inside of each one of you who works in you to will and to work after the good pleasure of God. So this is the good news for the Christian. Right? That Jesus doesn't abandon us, nor will He ever. Right? He has died for us. He has purchased us by His blood. He has bought us and we are now His. We are those whom the Father has given the Son and the Son will fulfill His work as mediator. He will present us holy and blameless before the Father's throne on the last day. And so this leads us then into our third and final point this morning, which is ways to break up the hardness of your heart. We see how Jesus deals with the hardness of the Pharisees. And they're demanding a sign. And their hardness, as we said, it stemmed and it was formed out of hate for Jesus. We see how Jesus deals with the hard-heartedness of the apostles who are slow to understand and not as focused on the eternal things like they should have been because they were so consumed with what was going on on earth. Although their hard-heartedness was more of a a dullness of heart. It was a spiritual laziness to the things of God. Not taking time to focus and reflect that they were in the presence of the Lord. Right? They were lazy in their spiritual growth. And we see this because they aren't increasing like they should be. Because they're committing the same error time and time again. And yet what we see, brothers and sisters, that we are a lot like the apostles, are we not? Our hearts are often cold toward our Lord. Our hearts are oftentimes cold as we gather here in worship, waiting. When is it time to get out of this place? We are consumed with the earth, so much so that we forget about our spiritual needs and our spiritual condition. We can fall into patterns of sin and not think that it's a big deal. But how do we break free from that? How do we break off the hard chunks that still remain on our heart? Well, I'll give you three ways this morning as we draw to a close. I think that Jesus gives us good direction here in verse 15 when He says and cautions the apostles. He says, watch out and beware. This is a double admonition. Really pay attention to what I'm saying, He's saying. Watch out and beware. And what is it that he's telling them to beware of before they get sidetracked by this talk of bread? He's saying the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Well, what is leaven? Leaven is that yeast that gets added to bread that makes it to rise. 
And so, what is Jesus saying when He says to them? Right? Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Well, this, this word leaven is used other places as well. Paul uses it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 and 8, Paul calls pride. He calls malice. He calls evil all leaven. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul describes false teaching as leaven. Right? So, Jesus is saying, watch out for the evil hearts of the Pharisees and of Herod. Right? They are both out to destroy me. They are full of pride. They are full of malice. They are full of evil. The Pharisees watch out for their false teaching. Why is that? Why are they to watch out for their false teaching? Well, because like leaven, right, it spreads and it permeates the entire loaf of bread. In like manner, when you allow false teaching into the church, when you allow evil into the church, what happens? It quietly yet quickly permeates all over the church and affects everybody. And so Jesus is saying, beware of this. Watch out for it. Don't allow it to be. And so we can learn that the first way to break up the hard-heartedness of your heart is to saturate yourself in the truth of God's Word and to keep far away from anything that is evil and false. Saturate yourselves in the truth of God's Word. Flee anything that is false, anything that is a lie. Remember the effect that false teaching had on the church in Galatia. Right? When the Judaizers were adding to the Gospel, saying you have to be circumcised as well. That wreaked havoc on the church. You see, false doctrine draws us into false practice and false belief, which does what? It doesn't help us to conform us to Christ, but it hardens our hearts towards Christ. And so if you want to break free from that hardness, what we need to do is cling to God's Word and flee false things and evil things. Secondly, if you want to break up the hardness of your heart, what you need to do, brothers and sisters, is you need to pray. You need to pray. Pray like the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 18. He says this, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things of your law. You see, we can't open our own eyes. We cannot open our own eyes. We are spiritually blind to sin. We need God to open up our eyes. We need God to teach us. We need Him to cause us to behold His Word and to delight in it. And for it to be satisfying to our souls. We ought to be like that father in Mark chapter 9 that we're going to look at in a few weeks. If you remember the story, he comes to Jesus and he asks that Jesus would heal his son who had an unclean spirit. And he says to Jesus, if you can, will you heal him? And what's Jesus' response to this man? If I can. He says, all things are possible for those who believe. And this man, at first, not trusting, right, not totally convinced, after that rebuke says what? I believe, but Lord, help my unbelief. Right, that is what all of us here need to be praying. Every day, Lord, help my unbelief because the most holy and most orthodox of saints does not have perfect faith. Right, we all have imperfect faith, brothers and sisters. And then the third and the last thing that we need to do if we desire to break up this hardness of our hearts is we need to watch over our hearts. We need to watch over our hearts. 
Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, we're told this. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Keep your heart with all vigilance. You know, there's a reason why we're constantly being told, watch over your heart. Keep your heart. Be spiritually alert. Guard yourself. It's because our hearts easily deceive us. Our hearts easily deceive us. And so, a way that we keep watch over our hearts is through self-examination. We need to be examining our hearts constantly. This is why it's good if when you sit here in church on Sunday, right, and, and some part of the Word of God pierces your conscience, what you ought to do is jot it down. You need to go home and then you need to think about why is this aspect of God's Word causing me to feel uncomfortable? Right, look over your life. Examine it. Where may, may I be harboring sin? And then call out to God that He might free your heart from all corruption. That He might give you the strength to flee whatever sin is ailing you. This is why you must be at church. You must be at church. One author said that it's the preaching of the Word of God that God uses as a hammer to break up the stoniness of your hearts. This is why it's so important to be at church. The Word of God is like God's hammer. He uses to chip away at whatever resides, that sin that resides still in each one of your hearts. These are the means God has left us to pursue holiness and to put off sin. And so if you hate sin, if you grieve over sin, you would be wise to heed our Lord's admonishment. You would be wise to put these means to good use so that you might break down any hard-heartedness that remains inside. And yet, thankfully, brothers and sisters, for those of you who have trusted in Christ, even though imperfectly, we know that because we have Jesus and because we have the Holy Spirit working inside of us, that we can do it. So I ask that you bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful and grateful for Your Word. We are thankful for Your chastisements. We are grateful for Your admonishments. Lord, we we need them desperately because our hearts will deceive us. And so, Father, we ask that You would uh, teach us by Your Word this day uh, the areas of our life where hard-heartedness remains. And that, Father you would be working within us to break apart any residual sin that that remains in the cracks and the crevices of our heart. We ask that you would give us a desire and a love to gather at your church, knowing that this is the place, not only where we worship you, Father, but this is the place where you help to conform us to the image of your Son. And so, Father, we come before you and we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.